right, so uh, the title of this talk today is, Is Sex a Human Right? really wanted to have PowerPoint, but our PowerPoint machine broke, so if you came here with the pictures, you can leave. <laughs> um, uh, so before we get started, I'm going to um, pray the Collect for Purity, because there's so many Anglicans here. Um, <laughs> I just think it's a good one to open this particular talk with. So let's pray together. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open. All desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. So when I was a teenager in the late 90s and early 2000s, you know sort of how old I am, um, Christian purity culture was getting along like a house on fire. I poured over my copy of When God Writes Your Love Story, <laughs> assured that if I could just make it to, say, 22 at the latest, I would be rewarded with a soft-lit romance like the one on the cover, the close-up of two faces, just about to make out. I followed the journaling activities in And the Bride Wore White. I knew that I was saving myself for marriage. I wrote love letters to my future husband, whom I had envisioned uh, had in turn been practicing guitar so he would be ready to serenade me at all times. <laughs> Every Valentine's Day, I made him a card and saved it, since I knew he'd be the sentimental type like me. I never expected to be unmarried at 32. Dating kissed me goodbye before we'd even said hello. <laughs> in the words of a childhood friend of mine who's still single at 32 also, I grew up thinking everyone got married. That's just what happened. What I learned about sexuality and marriage from these books left me vastly underprepared for how complex life would turn out to be. I wasn't ready for the hypersexual society I encountered in the world out there, and I wasn't prepared for what life is today. <coughs> I've seen massive disillusionment in my Christian friends who were raised on a fairy tale that never delivered. In many cases, this disillusionment has actually caused a crisis of faith which I also see among the students here at Libri sometimes. Many Christians have left the church for what they hope will be greener pastures of sexual fulfillment. And many of those who've remained Christians are no longer persuaded by the traditional marriage, uh, view of marriage um, that it matters for sex. So what have we in the church got so wrong? If anything, are the culture's pastures really so green outside our doors? Can we learn to love the shepherd's call to purity again? The talk I'm going to give tonight is what I imagine I might have told myself 15 years ago, maybe with some bigger words than I would have understood, I don't know, um, when I was almost of marriageable age. Uh, so first, I'm going to talk about how the sexual, or the secular, it's hard to, not get those two words mixed up, secular culture views sex primarily as a means to self-fulfillment. Um, something that each person must express in order to be healthy and whole. Um, I'll talk about two views of sexuality, realism and romanticism, and how they've combined themselves into this deadly duo that undermines the significance of sex at the same time as giving it the primary weight for shaping our identity. And I'll talk about the cracks that show in our society today as a result of these twisted ideas. Then we'll examine Christian attempts to provide an alternative view of sexuality and how they've often failed by actually spreading some of the same errors as the secular view. Finally, I'll take a look at how we can recover a comprehensive Christian vision of sexuality that might actually be persuasive today. It's a small task that I set myself. 
Um, and I've given you an outline that has some of the bigger quotes since I couldn't put them on PowerPoint. Um, and uh, also the outline. <laughs> okay, so first let's look at what the sexual, the <laughs> did it again, at what the secular <laughs> culture offers us through the doctrines of realism and romanticism. Um, so this is self-fulfillment through sex, the secular view. So Jonathan Grant, in his excellent book, Divine Sex, which I owe much of this talk to, um, examines our current cultural attitudes towards sex. And there are two primary views of sex that surround us, he says, realism and romanticism. As I examine these views, I'm going to quote from a lot of pop songs to illustrate, because it wouldn't be a lecture at Canadian Libri if we didn't do that. Um, so first, let's look at realism. Sigmund Freud popularized the idea that sexual repression, he's the one who got, came up with that, is damaging for humans. It's the stifling of a natural force. It's the same as starving ourselves. So sex is a physical need like hunger or thirst. And what we do with our bodies has no meaning beyond the physical world. Human life is driven by the natural urges and the survival of the fittest. In the words of one song, which I recommend you don't look up the full lyrics to, <laughs> first time I did this, uh, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do it on the Discovery Channel. Sex is happiness technology that humans, as intelligent animals, can harness for their pleasure. Love is an illusion. Other people are there to be used, controlled before they try to control you. This is in a utilitarian view that seeks the maximum amount of pleasure with the minimum amount of effort. As an example, I'm going to read the lyrics to a song written by a 17-year-old Dutch girl. I cannot pronounce her name, but I'll try. Um, so the lyrics are on your handout there. And this is really popular right now. I hear it on the radio all the time. I'm going to try not to sing it. It's very catchy. Um, I think I'll manage. So it's called Not a Love Song. The artist's name is Below, something like that. You're a nice guy. And you're looking for a nice girl to fall for you for a lifetime. But that's not my vibe. I'm just trying to have fun. You say love is blind, but that's just some bull <laughs> right there. Because <laughs> I'm looking in your eyes and they're burning fire. Sex on my mind and that's what you want. Here face to face and we both know the truth. You're calling my bluff. I can't lie like you do. Wish I could tell you that I love you, but I can't. Wish I could call you in the morning, but I can't. Wish I could tell you that I miss you, but I can't. This is not a, life, a love song. I get excited when you kiss me like that, when we're body to body like that. Wish I could tell you that I want you more than that, but this is not a love song. Sentimental guy, one of a kind. Really, boy, that's hard to find. But that's not my type. You should find your other side. The apple to your eye, the yin to your yang, the blue to your sky, your kiss in the rain, the Mary to your Jane. But you should know that's not my thing. This is not a love song. It's all lies. It's all lies. Fairy tales, a waste of time. It's all lies, it's all lies. You know what I want, you know what I like. No need to pretend we'll be happy in the end. No more lies, no more lies. This is not a love song. So in this song, the singer advocates a no strings attached, attached sexuality. She tells this sentimental guy that what he wants is a lie, a fairy tale. It's only pretending to think they could be happy in the end. If we're really honest, all that's left is the physical act of sex, devoid of any meaning. Believing anything else is a waste of time. In another currently popular song, Clothes Off, which says it all, Rhea May sings the chorus, I don't want your heart, your soul, or your hand. I want your body, I want your body instead. 
I hear more and more of this type of song, and when it's sung by a woman, it seems to be hailed as a liberation of female sexuality. Finally, free from fear of pregnancy and social judgment, women can act the way men have for thousands of years. Not all men, but some. We can use men too, not just be used. Rather than raise the standard for men, women have lowered the standard for themselves. This no-strings-attached attitude has caused us to see other people primarily as there for our pleasure and to reduce ourselves to the same. Our bodies have become, in the words of one writer, pleasure machines and nothing more. So that's realism. The second view of sexuality informing our culture is romanticism. The sentimental guy in Below's song is a textbook romantic. And romanticism formed as a reaction against realism's cold, mechanistic way of viewing the human. It challenged people to look inside for who they truly are and to express that truth at all costs. According to Grant, romanticism says we should freely express with our bodies what we feel in our hearts. Instead of catering to societal expectations, the individual needs to explore her inner identity and express it as freely as possible. To have personal integrity means to throw off all artificial constraints, which is basically anybody telling you what to do. It's not only an option, but actually a moral imperative that we follow our hearts and express who we really are, and that's particularly in our sexual lives. To live by anyone else's rules is to do deep damage to our truest selves. So romanticism has a lot to do with self-expression, but it's also about finding complete satisfaction in somebody else. Someone who unconditionally affirms whatever we express. Grant points out that because we expect the material world to offer complete fulfillment, we look for a soulmate who will meet all of our psychological, emotional, material, and sexual needs. Not only is this an impossible expectation for any relationship to fulfill, but because our relationships have become primarily about how we can get our own needs met, we don't actually learn how to give to another person in the way that can sustain a long-term relationship. So one pop song says, I like me better when I'm with you. Our lover is there to help us feel good about ourselves, mostly. So despite these deep soulmate longings, we just keep our options open in case the other person can't deliver on all of these hopes and dreams. So a popular theme I notice in top 40 songs is this narrative style in which each verse describes a different era in that couple's life together. So these are these kind of soulmate stories. The couple meets, usually in a drunken abandon in a bar, um, gets married, has a family, and grows old together. And even the Dutch teenage cynic below that I'm just quoted from has her own version of this song, Two Punks in Love. <laughs> Somehow she set aside her no-strings-attached ideal to sing even though the years go by, seasons changed and flowers died, we're still rocking side by side. I'm still yours and you're still mine. So how we get to this lifetime commitment from not a love song is a bit of a puzzle. Both realism and romanticism <coughs> revolve around individual fulfillment. As soon as someone stops meeting our needs, we look elsewhere. Convinced any sexual frustration in marriage or singleness is detrimental to our health. It's not the best recipe for decades of rocking side by side. Most of us formed by Western culture, myself included, feel both the realist and romantic narratives tugging at us. Is sex so meaningful we should structure our quest for identity and love around it? Or is it just an animal urge? We waver back and forth between the two, 
and the tension this creates runs deep. Let's look at the human cost of these views of sex. So this is the cracks begin to show, which is a loss of trust. Taylor Swift, guilty pleasure, <laughs> once the queen of sentimental love songs, has become famous for a wake of broken relationships. She mostly writes her songs about that. Her sentimental attitude has turned to cynicism. Of her more recent song, Wildest Dreams, in which she asks her lover to remember her fondly once they inevitably break up, she says, that's actually a really good example of the way I go into relationships now. If I meet someone who I feel I have a connection with, the first thought I have is, when this ends, I hope it ends well. I hope you remember me well. Which is not anything close to the way I used to think about relationships. It's the realization that it's the anomaly if something works out. It's not the given. She says she used to enter relationships with idealism, thinking maybe this is the one, we'll get married and have a family, this could be forever. And now she expects every relationship to fail. This fatalism informs many top 40 songs. Sam Smith's Too Good at Goodbyes is another example. There's some of the lyrics are in your handout. I'm never going to let you close to me, <coughs> even though you mean the most to me, because every time I open up, it hurts. So I'm never going to get too close to you, even when I mean the most to you, in case you go and leave me in the dirt. But every time you hurt me, the less that I cry. And every time you leave me, the quicker these tears dry. And every time you walk out, the less I love you. Baby, we don't stand a chance. It's sad, but it's true. I'm way too good at goodbyes. No way that you'll see me cry. I'm way too good at goodbyes. I always find this music quite heartbreaking. <laughs> the cost of no strings attached has been trust. Vulnerability is far too risky. We can't expect anyone to stick it through with us when the going gets tough. So we put up walls and try to separate our bodies from our souls. We've been told that sexual fulfillment is what we need most. So we sacrifice the intimacy that only trust can create. We reduce sex to pleasure because in this framework, that's all we can get. We practice self-centered sexuality, not only in relationships, but also through our mass consumption of porn. Porn teaches us that sex is really all about us and requires no effort on our part. It sucks us deeper and deeper into ourselves. We were told unlimited sex was going to create unlimited freedom. But these songs I quoted from tell a different story, one of disillusionment and heartache. And the consequences of sex as self-fulfillment run even deeper. Last spring, April 23rd, 2018, a young man drove down Young Street in Toronto in a white van. He swerved off the road onto the sidewalk, killing 10 people and injuring six. Most of you probably remember this. A witness reported that the driver made eye contact with the victims and drove as if he were playing a video game, trying to kill as many people as possible. As always, the shocked public wanted to know why. What was the motivation for what seemed so senseless? It could only lead to the perpetrator's own destruction. A Facebook post from the alleged perpetrator, Alex Manassian, written just before the attack, announced, The incel rebellion has already begun. We will overthrow all the Chads and Stacys. All hail the supreme gentleman, Elliot Roger. So the incel rebellion. Does anyone know what the term incel means? Clark knows. <laughs> we talked about it. Person in the class, Cody, I'm going to choose someone else. <laughs> um, what, do, can you define it for us? It's in, involunt, involuntary celibate. Okay, right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, involuntary celibate. <coughs> 
and uh, this is a community that mostly kind of congregates online and uh, mostly men. Um, and what they mean by the term is essentially some, someone who wants to have sex but can't find a willing partner. Uh, and, and most of these people are very bitterly angry that women will not sleep with them. Um, and so in incel speak re in reference to this post, Chad's are attractive sexually active men and Stacy's are attractive women. Um, in, in Manassian's post, he refers to Elliot Roger, another young man who in May 2014 killed six people and injured 14 others um, in Isla Vista, California, before he killed himself. Roger also identified as an incel and you know, outlined in a personal manifesto his plan to punish attractive women whom he felt rejected by. This is what he wrote. For the last eight years of my life, ever since I hit puberty, I've been forced to endure an existence of loneliness, rejection, and unfulfilled desires, all because girls have never been attracted to me. Girls gave their affection and sex and love to other men, but never to me. For Elliot Roger, Alex Manassian and other members of the incel community, sex is a human right. Without it, they face an existence of loneliness, rejection, and unfulfilled desires. Now the public has responded with moral outrage, as it should, over these claims that women owe men sex, and the violence some men will enact out of anger at being denied. Disturbing as the violence is, we shouldn't really be surprised by it. For many years, pickup artists have coached other men on how to break down women's barriers to get sex. Though Manassian and Roger are an extreme, they're also a symptom of a culture that views being sexually active as a necessary and primary path to human fulfillment. The recent hashtag MeToo movement, which has highlighted sexual harassment and assault, has created shockwaves in Hollywood, in corporate culture, and in the church. Many high-profile leaders have been charged with crimes against women, with a range of severity, and the spotlight on the abuse of power and the silencing of victims is much needed. But in ensuing discussions, most of the emphasis has been put on consent in sexual encounters, and this is problematic. Of course no one should have sex with an unwilling partner, that should be obvious, it's not. But these issues are symptoms of deeper cultural problems and simply not asking for a yes or ignoring a no. This quote is on page two. Um, this is Christine Emba writing for the Washington Post on the, the Me Too movement. At the bottom of all this confusion sits a fundamental misframing, that there's some baseline amount of sex that we should be getting or at least should be allowed to pursue. Following from that is the assumption that the ability to pursue and satisfy our sexual desires, whether by hitting on that coworker, even if we're at a professional lunch, or by pursuing a sexual encounter, even when reciprocity is unclear, is paramount. At best, our sexual freedom should be circumscribed only by the boundary of consent. Any other obstacle is not to be borne. It's not that sex in and of itself is the problem, but the idea that pursuing one's sexual imperatives should take precedence over workplace rules, lines of power, or even just appropriate social behavior is what allows predators to justify sexual harassment and assault and it encourages the not-predators to value their desires above those of others. So valuing your desires above those of others. In another article she writes, while we're much better at calling out bad behavior, we haven't come to an agreement on what's good. Consent is the line we use to separate the acceptable from the unacceptable, but it's thin and often detached from a real understanding of the human person. 
While consent is a helpful legal framework for risk avoidance, it too often allows us to bypass questions of respect, relationship, and care. Is the worst thing about taking advantage of a drunken classmate really the fact that you didn't get her to mouth yes first? Pretty interesting to hear that in a major public newspaper. So former Canadian Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, father of our current Prime Minister for the non-Canadians, famously said, the state has no business in the bedrooms of the nation. I had a classmate who had that tattooed on her arm, I remember. Um, sex has been relegated to a private affair, even as it's splashed across magazine covers and billboards. So it's public in one sense, private in another. Um, and of course, nobody really wants a government official standing in every bedroom. Um, but when there's no moral formation, only individualistic consumption, what happens in the bedroom gets increasingly dangerous and complex. Wendell Berry, in his really great essay, Sex, Economy, Freedom, and Community, writes, trying to draw the line where we are trying to draw it between carelessness and brutality is like insisting flying is falling until you hit the ground and then trying to outlaw hitting the ground. So we're trying to have our cake and eat it too, essentially. Sex with no boundaries, in which other people are objects for our pleasure. But we still want it to be safe. We've liberated sexuality from the bonds of trust developed in a healthy marriage. As a result, sexual encounters become a hotbed of accusations. The state, which was supposed to be kept out of the bedroom, is called in to arbitrate. The law flounders as it tries to judge increasingly complicated cases that, in most circumstances, had no other witnesses. Barry writes, The marriage of two lovers is the fundamental connection without with which nothing holds, and trust is its necessity. Our present sexual conduct, on the other hand, having liberated itself from the several trusts of community life, is public, like our present economy. It has forsaken trust, for rests on the easy giving and breaking of promises. And having forsaken trust, it has predictably become political. In private life, as in public, we are attempting to correct bad character and low motives by law and litigation. Consent isn't enough because it doesn't treat us how to see people as truly human. A friend of mine recently described the patterns of sexual relationships she's noticed. She lives in the city. Women feel used by men and they get sex to get revenge, use sex to get revenge. There's a lot of anger between the sexes, she said. So these are all consensual relationships, but they're causing deep damage to the people involved in them, their human dignity. If we make, se if we make sex primarily about self-expression and self-fulfillment, other people become objects for our use. This naturally leads to disregard for the other person's wishes, in many cases even ending in violence an act that's meant to be the deepest expression of trusting vulnerability becomes instead a tenuous, potentially dangerous encounter. As Wendell Berry says of the phrase safe sex, sex has never been safe, and it is less safe now than it has ever been. Sex has become an insatiable, demanding God. In the words of C.S. Lewis, mercilessly chaining together two mutual tormentors, each raw all over with the poison of hate and love, 
each ravenous to receive and implacably refusing to give. Jealous, suspicious, resentful, struggling for the upper hand, determined to be free and to allow no freedom, living on scenes. If that doesn't sound like a top 40 love song, I don't know what does. <laughs> so how can we make sex safe again? Let us turn now to the purity movement, which I call the church's misguided response, <coughs> for the most part. <coughs> so Christian leaders have been aware of the epidemic of disordered sexuality, but their response has actually often served to perpetrate the very problems they attempted to address. The purity culture I grew up with wanted to uphold the traditional Christian view of marriage, which was a noble goal. It said some helpful and true things, but for the most part, these bits of gold were lost, lost in a mass of misdirected muck. One Libri student in her mid-twenties told me of attending a purity camp where the girls wore white made-up actions to Rebecca St. James' purity anthem, I Will Wait For You, which describes the singer's future husband, she imagines. A speaker also took bites out of an apple to demonstrate how each sexual encounter would move you towards becoming only a core of a woman, unlikely to be chosen by any man. And Joshua Harris in his book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, corroborates this with telling us that each time guys had sex with a girl, they took a piece of her soul. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this lopsided language was applied to women much more than men. Because as one book I read recently says, women give sex to get love and men give love to get sex. The purity culture put a premium on virginity as a measurement of worth, particularly for women. Now this culture gave my Christian friends and I some foundational ideas about sex. First, it told us that the reason to practice chastity is because true love waits for marriage. Waiting implied fulfillment. We wait because we know one day we will be married. God has put the mark of Liz on some lucky guy out there, and he'll be ir irresistibly drawn towards me from deepest Arkansas or wherever he happens to be. And this is what Jonathan Grant calls soulmate salvation. It's the Christian spin on the soulmate thing. The idea that we'll find completion when we meet the one. The single human being that God has fashioned into perfect compatibility with all of our needs and longings. So the implication of all of this was that singleness was a waiting state. Just lost it out. Sure, you can go on missions trips or weave some WWJD bracelets while you wait, yeah. but ultimately you'll move right out of your parents' home into your husband's ever-loving embrace. When God Writes Your Love Story was written by a woman who met a woman and her husband, and they met when she was 16 years old. <laughs> so it sounded really simple. All we had to do was follow the list of rules, and God would come through on his end of the bargain. In these purity culture books and conferences, I never went to one, but I'm sure it happened, stories abound that paint a hyper-romantic picture of two virgins on their wedding night. One book promises, the great sex you and your husband will enjoy someday will be free from painful consequences or guilt, well worth the wait. The great sex you and your husband will enjoy what could be more foolproof? And then we all grew up. What happened? I've asked myself many times. Couples married in a fever pitch glow of this is the one God chose for me have split not even a year later. I've seen multiple spouses leave within a year because they just didn't want to be married anymore. Others believed that their issues of sexual dysfunction would be cured within marriage. 
and they weren't. Friends have told me we did everything right. What happened? I've heard that lots of times. The ones with relatively happy marriages still have to deal with the reality of unexpected pregnancies, squalling babies, busy schedules, tight budgets, and that's just the marriages. Most of my female friends who are now in their 30s and late 20s are still single, with few if any prospects for meeting eligible men, even at church, maybe particularly at church. No. <laughs> Most of us have tried online dating. Most of us have been disappointed and felt vaguely commodified. One friend told me at a wedding reception, I'm going to sleep with whoever I want because I'm angry God hasn't given me a husband. I can understand that frustration. I remember one purity book quoting a woman who hadn't gotten married till her 30s. I prayed that would never be me. I couldn't think of anything worse. And yet here I am, still single and alive today at 32. <laughs> I avoided unplanned pregnancy, but not unplanned singleness. But we did everything right. What happened to God's end of the bargain? What happened to the sweet, sweet married sex? Lauren Winner writes in her book, Real Sex, too often the church, rather than giving unmarried Christians useful tools and thick theologies to live chastely, instead tosses off a few bromides. True love waits is not that compelling when you're 29 and wonder what really you're waiting for. Joshua Harris, as a young single lad of 21, wrote what might be considered the manifesto of the Christian purity movement, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Recently, he asked his publisher to discontinue this best-selling book. The publisher agreed. Harris's website includes a statement explaining how his views have changed since he wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Part of the statement reads, In an effort to set a high standard, the book emphasized practices, not dating, not kissing before marriage, and concepts, giving your heart away, that are not in the Bible. In trying to warn people of the potential pitfalls of dating, it instilled fear for some fear of making mistakes or having their heart broken. The book also gave some the impression that a certain methodology of relationships would deliver a happy ever after ending. A great marriage, a great sex life, even though this is not promised by scripture. I had the pleasure of reading most of the book in preparation for this talk. <laughs> and as Harris affirms, there are still some really good points in it. But the gist of it promises something that it didn't and couldn't deliver. Harris um, actually was studying at Regent College in Vancouver and created a documentary called I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. <laughs> and it's amazing that he did this. Um, he examines the damage done by his book in this uh, film. <clears throat> and the film points out that abstinence campaigns used sex to sell chastity. The I give God abstinence, God gives me a sexy marriage way of thinking is a relational prosperity gospel. One writer comments on the film, Christian young people were promised that remaining sexually pure would guarantee mind-blowing marital sex later. This is still just sex as self-fulfillment. It's the same story as pop culture, just with more rules. Like a bad Christian pop song, Christian purity culture took what culture was already saying and put its own spin on it. But like a bad Christian pop song, few people wanted to buy the knockoff when the original was so much more persuasive. can't help but look back on the purity movement and think it was mostly a failure. So few of the kids I grew up with still value chastity. We learned the reason for chastity was so God would give us what we want, not so we become the kind of people he wants us to be. When we didn't get what we wanted, most of us threw chastity out the window. 
Grant writes of the purity movement. The disappointment with God that many people have experienced through this well-intentioned movement shows how important the delicate project of casting vision is within Christian discipleship. In a culture where sexual expression is seen as a fundamental right, we need to give powerful significance to our sexual lives, but without making them the goal of our faith. If purity culture failed to provide a compelling alternative to the secular story of realism and romanticism, what can we do? Is this the end of the story? By no means. Rather than just put a Christian culture spin on the prevailing culture's attitudes towards sex, we need to recover a true biblical vision for sexuality. So, sweeter song toward a Christian vision of sex. Does anyone here know the story of Odysseus and the Sirens? Most of you have probably heard something about it. So, who, who were the Sirens? Anyone know? The Sirens on a ship? Like when he was sailing by? Yeah, yes. You're yes. on the right track there. <laughs> so they, who were they? They were the beautiful women that would lure the men to their death. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so they, uh, some woman who uh, hung out near some sketchy looking rocks. Some paintings <laughs> portray them as mermaids, others as like half bird, half woman, but anyways, they were very alluring somehow. And they sang beautiful songs, probably <coughs> even better than Taylor Swift. Mm. Um, <coughs> When the ship sailed closer, drawn irresistibly by the music, they crashed onto the rocks and their sailors drowned. Odysseus really wanted to hear the singing, but he wasn't so keen on drowning. The only way to hear the sirens and live, he decided, was to lash himself to the mast of his ship while his sailors plugged their ears with wax. No matter how Odysseus writhed and strained toward the sirens' song, the ropes held fast and the sailors kept rowing. In this way, he was able to hear the song and escape alive. But I imagine there were nights when he lay beside his wife, Penelope, and that song came back to him, and he thought, if only. I imagine he got a pretty nasty rope burn, too. Much of what we've been taught in church has been something like Odysseus' strategy. Plug up your ears or lash yourself to the mast. The song will sound sweet, but if you tie yourself up tightly enough with rules, you won't throw yourself overboard. Problem is, we never learn to see the song itself as a lie. It still calls to us from every billboard and magazine, and our ears are attuned to it. Without us even thinking, our desires have been shaped by these songs. Another story about the sirens with a different hero. The story is about Jason and the Argonauts and Orpheus. Now, when Jason approached the sirens, he didn't lash, lash himself to the mast. No one plugged the sailor's ears. And yet they sailed right past the singing that caused most men to go mad with desire. How did they do it? Well, when they got near, Orpheus, who was the prince of musicians, pulled out his lyre and began to play. The song that he played was more beautiful than the siren song. It caused the men to row with a great desire, a desire greater than the siren's lure. They sailed on past the dangerous rocks, driven by desire, not restrained by force. These two approaches to temptation reveal something essential in our understanding of sexuality. To resist the damaging script our culture gives us, we in the church need to provide a compelling alternative story. 
too often the Christian approach to chastity has been anything but inspiring. One purity book includes lists of rules, exactly which items of clothing to throw out of your closet, exactly which expressions of the five love languages are inappropriate, which include washing your boyfriend's car in your bikini or giving him a <laughs> massage after his football game. Uh, <laughs> rules like the ropes that bound Odysseus can be helpful. We need boundaries. But without a framework that helps people understand the reasons for chastity, the rules will ultimately only serve to frustrate. What we need to recover is a song so beautiful that, whether married or single, we long to demonstrate faithfulness in our personal lives. So, what is sex for? In order to hear this sweeter song, we need to examine what sex is actually for. If it's not about self-fulfillment, then what is it about? The Christian view of sex, the traditional view as relegated to the permanent bond of marriage between one man and one woman, will feel very stifling if we don't understand the reason for it. So first, how can we define sexuality? This has been very interesting for me to think about. Um, sexuality in its broadest sense is the drive we experience toward the other. And this may or may not involve the desire for sex, per se. And all of us are created this way to desire intimacy with others. It's just part of being human. So this is the broad definition of sexuality. How does that relate to the realist view? Does what we do with our bodies actually have any meaning? Our physical bodies are created by God as good. God made them and said, it is good. They should never be despised, which sometimes we have tended to do in the church. They're part of how we enact that movement towards intimacy in all our relationships. We live in our bodies. Because God made us with bodies, what we do with our body matters to him. Matter matters. Our bodies are one with our souls. Our physical actions flow from and influence our hearts. We can't separate our hearts from our bodies, as those pop songs I quoted earlier attempt to do. We're told, told that our body is a temple, the very dwelling place of God. Paul tells us that if we destroy God's temple in each other, God will destroy us. That's pretty <laughs> scary. That means we should treat our own bodies and other people's bodies with the greatest care and respect, as we would in entering a sacred space. Bodies, our own or others, are not just pleasure machines. They bear the image and the presence of the living God. In fact, in our embodied lives, we reflect who God is to the world around us. So marriage between a man and a woman is a story that tells of God's faithfulness to us. Some of us have the privilege of demonstrating God's character through fidelity in marriage. Those who watch see a picture of who God is and what is possible between two people whose lives have been redeemed, who have set aside their own self-fulfillment as their primary goal. It's now through modern technology, pregnancy has become optional for most couples, but an inextricable, inextricable part of sex is its creative potential. That's why we're all here today. The artist Tovlo sings, bodies, our baby-making bodies we just use for fun. Bodies, let's use them up till every little piece is gone. So again, this shows the realist view that bodies are ours to use up as pleasure machines. But in marriage, bodies aren't just for fun, they're also for baby making, when that's a possibility. So God's norm for marriage is that it welcomes children, or at least the possibility of children, and gives them a safe place to grow and be nurtured and loved. Truly committed marriages make a stable society, creating families, which are the building blocks 
of people dedicated to each other's good. Sex within marriage represents God's union with us. It's a committed union. But in a very real way, it also makes a couple one with one another. Paul says that if you have sex with a prostitute, you become one with her. And your bodies actually create a distorted image of God's love. Union without commitment. And that's why real sex is more than just a particular physical act. Real sex can only happen within a covenantal relationship. Outside of that commitment, it becomes something else. In response to the romantic view, which places the primary emphasis on how we feel about other people or our own identity as a measure of how we should express our sexuality, God tells us that the measurement isn't the sincerity or depth of our passion, but the law he's given us. C.S. Lewis says of our sexuality, it has not pleased God that the distinction between a sin and a duty should turn on fine feelings. Though it may be very difficult, and often is, our work is to try and bring our feelings in line with God's law, not the other way around. This is a law given for human flourishing. Paul tells us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, our spiritual worship. The body isn't to be despised, but presented as something holy before God, devoted to him. Our sexuality is a part of our character to be formed, not a part of our personality to be expressed. The Christian view of sexuality is a very high one, not negative, which we often don't understand. It treats sex as something precious that needs protection to be rightly enjoyed. It gives a high value to our bodies and our relationships. Marriage is really the only space where we can practice safe sex. When it's properly established with trust and commitment, marriage protects hearts, children, and society, and it reflects who God is. But what if you're single and not having sex? Does that mean you stop being a sexual being? Well, being celibate actually doesn't mean you're not expressing your sexuality. I was interested to learn this term, affective or social sexuality. It describes our general desire for human intimacy, which is not necessarily erotic. Our sexuality compels us to move toward the other, even in friendship. So single people are able to use their affective sexuality to bond with others. This looks different than in marriage. It can still be sustaining and deep. <coughs> and like marriage, singleness also has a play, part to play in representing God's character to the world. And all of us will be single at one point because we're not born married. And, we, and often one couple, usually couples don't die at the same time as each other. So you may end up being single again after marriage. Um, but... In this vision for singleness, um, singleness images God's openness to the other, his hospitality in a way that the constraints of marriage and family can't do. Paul speaks of the opportunity single people have to devote themselves more fully to serving God. Jesus, of course, was never married, and yet he was still perfect. Singleness speaks clearly of our primary dependence on God to make us fruitful through his grace. The prophet Isaiah, speaking into a culture where producing children was paramount, wrote, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, to those who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house, within my walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So eunuchs in that culture would have never had children, and um, 
would have not had a high value, but that is not what God says to them. God gives fruitfulness to married and single people alike. Though marriage represents Christ's relationship with the church, in the kingdom of God, there will be no marriage at all. If you're happily married, this is probably hard to wrap your mind around, but Jesus is pretty clear about it. Singleness isn't a lesser state, only waiting for a better half. Singleness rightly lived can be fruitful and foreshadows a time when our ultimate union will be with God. The Christian vision sees sex as a good to be protected within marriage. We shouldn't downplay the importance of sex, but neither should we worship it. A biblical understanding of the roles of marriage and singleness can help us understand why we do what we do, rather than seeing restrictions on sexual expression as repressive or cruel. Our call isn't to self-fulfillment by whatever means we can find, but to self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice is the oar we use to row past the siren's call. So, called self-sacrifice. Our culture is obsessed with avoiding pain at all costs. The pleasure principle informs us that the pursuit of happiness is our ultimate goal. In such a culture, suffering has no value. We must medicate or distract ourselves from pain however we can. But this cuts directly against the Christian call to be like Christ in our sufferings. We're called to lay down our lives for each other, as Jesus did for us. Sex is a gift, not a right. Like any gift, it's not something we can demand from God or trade him for. Anything we receive from him is an undeserved grace. The point of chastity isn't to one day be rewarded with great sex, but to become formed more and more in the image of Christ, whether or not we ever marry, and whether or not that marriage goes as planned. I've often heard talk of people being called to celibacy or called to singleness. It's been listed on spiritual gift tests I took. I've always wondered how many people received it as their top gift. It's my greatest fear. <laughs> I especially wondered if they were surprised. No, I'm getting married next week. But the test never lies. <laughs> when I imagined someone called to celibacy, I was sure that person wouldn't desire sex or children. The word vocation means call or care. But more often than we think of God as the one calling us, we think of some internal desire that must be fulfilled as our vocation. It's a call our identity demands we realize. If we don't desire it, or I don't feel gifted for it, it's not from God. So I'm definitely not going to clean toilets, for example. <laughs> but if God is the one calling us, might it be possible that he's calling us somewhere we don't particularly desire to go? Our vocation, God's call, involves many different elements and stages. Right now, my vocation has many elements. Sister, daughter, labrie worker, writer, friend, and celibate. Some of these elements I've chosen, others I haven't, or at least I don't feel like I have. It can be very frustrating to feel a little control over my singleness. It's not a vocation I wanted, and it's not one I got on my spiritual gifts test 10 years ago. <laughs> I don't know if I'm called to lifelong singleness. I might be, I hope not. But because I am single, I know I'm being called to celibacy right now. That's how I know I'm called. And that means I have to learn how to honor God in my singleness and see it as a potential gift, even as I lament what feels like me, like to me as a lack. I failed to do this many times, and I won't be perfect tomorrow. But as I learn to be patient, I know God will be patient <coughs> with me. My celibacy might be involuntary, but how I respond to it is my choice and I want to choose creativity and joy rather than frustrated bitterness. 
For some of us here tonight, the effects of the fall will mean that we won't get married, even though we want to. For others, it will mean struggles within marriage. I know people who are married, but for various reasons, can't have sex or can't experience it fully. I know many married couples who aren't able to conceive, which is also a deep heartache. And all marriages involve self-sacrifice and fidelity, not self-fulfillment as the goal. None of us gets out of going through the fires of suffering. Most of us can expect that single or married, sexual frustration will be part of our life. And that's because our purpose isn't self-fulfillment, getting what we want. Our purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, not to glorify ourselves and enjoy sex forever. To pursue a goal greater than self, we have to relearn patience as a virtue, which is hard work in a culture of immediate gratification. The English poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, my favorite, wrote of patience. We hear our hearts grate on themselves. It kills to bruise them dearer. Yet the rebellious wills of us, we do bid God bend to him even so. Hopkins, a celibate Jesuit priest, struggled with the requirements of chastity, but he bent his will to God's over and over again. He wrote to his sister after her husband's death, but you are not to think, my dear, that you are somehow to be made happy someday for being unhappy this day. There is no sense in that. What God means is that you shall greatly gain if you will be humble and patient. And patience means that grief shall not make you exacting or selfish or in good time and fit you for ordinary duty. It has this effect on some people. It makes wrecks of them. In patience, he wrote, we learn God's delicious kindness, not by getting what we want, but by experiencing God's endless patience with us. The Bible portrays God's patience as that of a lover who continually pursues an unfaithful wife. I'm sure Freud would have had something to say about that. We can see the selfish lack of patience in the incel community, <coughs> leading quite literally to wrecks of human life. But love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We need to relearn patience as a virtue. True love does wait. It waits not ultimately for f human marriage, but for the marriage of Christ and the church, in which each one of us will be joined to God. What we experience now isn't the ultimate story. In Romans 8, Paul describes this future hope. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
The frustration that we each feel is real. It's part of the groaning of creation as it longs for its redemption. We can never forget that our hope is for a life beyond what we experience now. In God's kingdom come, our suffering will at last be satisfied in freedom and glory, our bodies redeemed. Patience may be a virtue, but it's certainly a struggle to attain. And just as the Argonauts needed each other's strength at the oars to row past the sirens, we need communities that can help us form true love in our relationships. So sex is everybody's business, the community role. By community, I don't mean the public who reads the tabloids and follows the court cases. I mean those who are involved in our everyday lives, all y'all here, those who know us and can see what we do. Rather than Pierre Trudeau's assertion that sex is privately a ma- essentially a private matter, we need to reclaim the community's involvement in people's sex lives. That doesn't mean exactly what you might think it means. <laughs> in our culture of individualism and self-fulfillment, the idea that anyone else should be able to tell two consenting adults what to do with their sex lives seems pretty absurd. But sex has power to shape who we are. As Lauren Winner says, because sex forms us, sex is a community matter. Wendell Berry writes, sex, like any other necessary, precious, and volatile power that is commonly held, is everybody's business. Sex isn't everybody's right, but it is everybody's business because it affects us all. How relationships and families form shapes our society and culture, which we all share. Without a community protecting the binding creative force of sexuality, it quickly becomes destructive. To believe that what we do in the bedroom has no impact on what we do on the streets is to try and compartmentalize the human body and soul. The idea that what we do affects nobody but us is a myth. In the old world words of the poet John Donne, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if any promontory were, as well as any manner of thy friends, or of thine own were, any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Each of us, whether we choose it or not, is involved in mankind. What we do has the power to build or diminish humanity, even as it builds or diminishes us. We're in this together, and that means we have the responsibility to hold each other responsible for the things that matter most to human life. And sexual love, says Wendell Berry, is the heart of community life. In the Bible's great love poem, The Song of Songs, two lovers delight in each other through erotic metaphors. But what strikes us as strange today is that the dialogue between the two lovers is punctuated by their friends, who also rejoice in their love and comment on their relationship. The community doesn't just show up on the wedding day and throw rice, but it is an essential part of the lover's story, a witness to the joys and fears of love. Eat, friends, they say. Drink and be drunk with love. The lovers address the community as well with the lessons they've learned through love. The community doesn't actually diminish the experience of intimacy, but enriches it. This is completely different from the view, popular in both secular and Christian culture, that marriage brings two halves together to make an independent whole. Two lone rangers who become one lone ranger, in the words of one writer. Yes, the two become one, but they still need community, and the community still needs them. It's tragic that the church has fallen prey to the same script as the secular culture idolizing the romantic relationship and putting pressure on a spouse to fulfill all our needs. 
Instead, we should demonstrate a very different pattern of life together. Through Christian community, we can help each other learn the virtues required to steward the power of sexuality. For those struggling with either marriage or singleness, the church can offer companionship, counsel, and practical help. One of the greatest gifts of my single years has been the rich friendships I've formed. Many of those friendships are with other young single people, but I've also been welcomed into the lives of various families, couples, and older people. My relationship with my colleagues Clark and Julia and their kids has been very meaningful to me. Through them I've seen how a marriage and family life functions up close. I don't have my own kids, but my relationship with Samuel and Sarah Beth eases some of that longing for me, especially when I hear them screaming upstairs. <laughs> Whether you're married or single, we need to recover a deep value for friendship, for our primary relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a bond that crosses ages, cultures, and marital status. We need to demonstrate what that looks like in our church life, rather than only spending time with those of the same age and stage as us. By choice or otherwise, many people will remain single. The hospitality of the church can make chastity within singleness plausible as it creates room for intimacy and committed friendship. Friendship has been treated as disposable by our culture, cast aside when a better job opportunity or a new romantic relationship comes along. This shouldn't be. Sex will only be for some of us, but friendship should be for everyone. Though we find our deepest fulfillment in God, much of God's love is mediated to us through his family, the church. As we're each adopted into God's family, we demonstrate ties deeper than biological ones. Those looking on should see this in the way we live, open to those who are different, committed to those God has given us in love. This holds true for both marriage and singleness. Marriage should be a hospitable place, not only focus inward. And singles shouldn't insist on their independence, but should bind themselves to community too. Community teaches us to pursue self-sacrifice as we consider the needs of others beyond ourselves. We learn not just to feel love, but to practice it. The practice of self-sacrifice in community is not, however, something we can achieve by ourselves. If the Christian view of marriage and singleness is the sweeter song God has written, who plays the song for us? If we row with the oar of self-sacrifice along with the members of a community, who is our Orpheus? This is the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's song. Central to our struggle to bring our desires in line with God's purposes is the realization that we can't do it without the Spirit's help. When I was a kid, we loved listening to the Christian rap group DC Talk. Clean the house for five minutes to a DC Talk song. And one short little song I remember well has just these lyrics. Willpower, 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 the power to will away temptation. Temptation's not so friendly. Battery's not included. So, it's awesome. I still like DC Talk. It made me laugh, but it also told me clearly that what I needed to overcome temptation was willpower. I still like DC Talk, but in these lines, they were dead wrong about temptation. In the ancient world, when Christianity was being formed, one popular philosophical group was the Stoics. They believed that pure willpower could overcome temptation. The mind could subject emotions and the body to its will. This was something like Ulysses tying himself up with ropes, or Odysseus got this too. They're the same guy, different name. Um, and in this case, the ropes were the mind. But this is not what Paul teaches us in the New Testament. The mind is just as affected by sin as the emotions. 
and it can also be deceived. What Paul prescribes isn't willpower worked up by our own efforts, but self-control as the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is the work of grace in us. Lauren Winner writes, one resists strong bodily urges like sexual desire, not primarily through willpower, but through grace. In a sense, Freud was right. Desire shouldn't be repressed. Instead, it should be redeemed, transformed. Jonathan Grant writes, redeemed desire lies at the very heart of the Christian self. In his book, You Are What You Love, theologian Jamie Smith writes about cultural liturgies that shape us. We aren't just bobbleheads on sticks, responding to ideas and discarding the ones that logically don't fit. In fact, we're primarily desiring beings, and what we desire is what we become. Our vision of the good life is what forms us, and it's a vision we practice through what we do. So even when I think I'm being critical of my culture, I get swept up in the realism or romanticism of what's around me, and I find myself singing along to Taylor Swift's way of thinking without even knowing. In Romans 7 and 8, Paul describes the war between our sinful desires and our redeemed desires in terms that sound very much like a modern pop song. The rules, or the law, have only made us aware of our sin. The rules haven't set us free. We keep doing what we don't want to do. In the words of Maroon 5, try to tell you no, but my body keeps on telling you yes. Try to tell you stop, but your lipstick got me so out of breath. I'll be waking up in the morning probably hating myself. And I'll be waking up feeling satisfied but guilty as hell. Who can help us get out of this battle between what we believe and what we do? Who will deliver us from this body of death? How unfashionable to think that what our body desires might be wrong. But all of us, our thoughts, feelings, and physical actions have been corrupted by sin. Willpower can never do enough. Only death through Jesus can set us free. Jesus, who died bearing the weight of every sin we would commit, sexual or otherwise, invites us into his death so that we can be resurrected and live free of slavery to our desires. He gives us life controlled by his spirit instead of life submitted to the pull of sin. In Romans, Paul writes, for those who live according to the flesh, that sinful desires, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The Holy Spirit sings a sweeter song to us. He works in our hearts not to lessen our desires and make us stoic, indifferent to either beauty or pain, but to reshape our desires into what they were intended to be. The word emotion means to move, motion. Our desires shouldn't become an end in themselves, but should move us toward the proper goal. Reason and willpower will never be enough to overcome the siren song. Instead, through formative practice, we have to train our heart to listen for the Spirit's tune, the still small voice that sings to the deepest part of us. Then our desires can steer us past the jagged rocks to our heart's true home in God. All right, that's what I have for you tonight. So we always follow our lectures with a time of discussion. And, um, if you need to leave, you can leave. You can also stay for discussion. So please ask questions, make comments, um, get angry, whatever you want to do. <laughs> Thank you for your comment, Megan. <laughs> 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 Any questions, comments?
can just stare awkwardly at y'all. <laughs> yes. I love the, um, not just the concept, but the kingdom reality of sex being everybody's business in the community. And I know you don't mean that so open-ended that it's inappropriate. <laughs> it's not being inappropriate in that. But I think one of the things that um, struck me about that is that there are just certain types of what we consider sexual abnormality or sexual inappropriate attractions that we seem to focus on in the church. Mm -hmm. And we don't focus on all the things that are going through each individual's mm -hmm. mind as they've grown over the years and hopefully matured, but just the things that still are tempting or the things that are idealistic or fantasizing. Mm -hmm. There's so much probably for lack of a better phrase, sexual sin, mm -hmm. just within each of us in the body mm -hmm. of Christ, but we, we've honed it down to a few diagnostic mm -hmm. prescriptions in which we dump our shame mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. cause those people who are more open mm -hmm. about their sexual lives to be mm -hmm. excluded from our community mm -hmm. of growth in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important point for sure. Mm -hmm. of yeah, it's kind of like the, the log in her own eye kind of thing, you know, mm -hmm. and I think, um, yeah, none of us is, none of us is without fault <laughs> in this area, um, really, and I think we really need to be able to bring those things to God um, before we go and criticize everyone else, and, and like you're saying, we tend to have a few things that we kind of see as sexual sin without realizing that this is like an area that all of us are broken in, um, and yeah, so I think that's very important. I, I mean, I think it is it is everybody's business, and we do have a responsibility to talk to each other about these things, but um, also to do it with humility is very important. So it's a project that we're all in together, I think. Liz, you, you talked about this a little bit, um, mm -hmm. of this idea of how there's like a whole movement in the church of the purity culture. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's potential now, or is it already happening that there's kind of a new movement in how we're talking to young people about sex in the church, and what do you think that movement is characterized by, or will be characterized by? Uh, yeah, this is a great question, it was something I was thinking about, um, my youngest sister is 12 years younger than me, and I was going to text her and be like, do people still read purity books? Like, I don't even know. Um, so I don't, if anyone else has any insight, that would be great, because I, I don't know how this is being taught in church today, and um, and I, I, you know, I read these books that are like a little more theological that are talking about this stuff, but I'm not sure how much it's kind of transferred into youth culture. And I really hope that there is something different. Um, I don't know if anyone has any insider. Um, <laughs> we're all a little older than is, that. So. Is divine sex? Is that what that is? Um, is it's not written for it's not written for teenagers or really that age. No. I wouldn't say so. No, it's no, it's more. Um, I mean, written for Christian leaders. Uh, I mean, I think there's been a lot of stuff done on the purity movement, um, books and films and other things, some of it very, very critical, <laughs> but I think, uh, yeah, so I think that at least there's been a backlash, but I'm not sure what the positive, like, outcome has been. I hope there's been one, um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not totally sure. I don't know. You, do you know anything? No, I just, yeah, yeah I wonder what uh, kind of the main things, if purity is not the main thing to focus on, mm -hmm. it's still... I think an aspect of mm -hmm. how we should be talking about sex, but mm -hmm. what what will this new movement be characterized mm -hmm. by? 
Yeah, well, I think also the sexual landscape has just changed so fast in our culture. I think when I when I went back and reread some of these books, I was like, whoa, this seems like a like there was a, a warning at the front of one of the books, like, you know, if this you think this is like too racy for your teenage daughter to read, and I was like, this is like a sex talk for an eight year old now. Like this is so, you know, like mild. <laughs> I mean, because people are schooled on pornography basically now. So yeah, I so I, I think it's been really. A challenge for the church to keep up with this this stuff because we don't like talking about it in the first place and then because we just have to go so much farther than we're comfortable with a lot of the time but if the church doesn't talk about it then our culture is talking about it all the time so that's you don't you don't really have that choice <laughs> for your kids not to find out about it just decide who they find out about it from i have a question for you mm -hmm. i'm wondering if you can unpack a little bit um how we would practically convert mm -hmm. grace into anti-repression. Mm -hmm. Of mm -hmm. course, I feel very weird saying that as one out of two young guys, and I'm making a joke, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think this is a question for all of us, and it's yeah. something that I, I want to keep thinking about, too. Um, so uh, the book You Are What You Love talks about how we're shaped by these cultural liturgies that we practice. Like, so, so if we go to a shopping mall, we're, it's like going to a church in a sense that we take in all these things through our vision. We do actions by buying certain things. We practice a consumer mentality through what we do. So we're really shaping ourselves through through our practices. Um, so we have to learn new practices. So he would say like spiritual disciplines are some of those things that, that form us and create space for the Holy Spirit to work. So I think that part of my question and what kind of comes up with this is how do we practice the spiritual disciplines in a way that's not legalistic um, and isn't just about like willpower or trying hard and I think that's this is kind of a mysterious relationship through the Holy Spirit and in our own practice of, of trying to make space for to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives um, and I'm sure Vanessa would love to answer all of your questions about that after <laughs> 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 um, yeah but but yeah, so that that would be some of that. But if you have any other thoughts, um, I would I would love to hear that too. <laughs> if anyone knows anything that's been helpful for them, I, I mean, I, I also really do feel like community is very deeply related to this um, in terms of having accountability with other people um, and just having relationships that are um, nourishing. Like I, I think you know, I remember when I lived by myself. Um, just even like physical touch was something that I would need and I would go home and like my, when my little sisters were really little just like hanging out with them cuddling with them on the couch like that was something I needed and I think um, some of these these purity culture books I've read like one literally said like uh, if you you know God should be all you need and if you if it's not and if you say well God doesn't have a physical body blah 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 well, you're just not trying hard enough. <laughs> and I think that that's, that's kind of a cop-out for the church to, to do that for single people because these are we are made with bodies <laughs> and we are made for relationship and the church needs to, to be there for people who are struggling with these things, you know, and to, uh, to meet some of that. So, so I just think it's been hugely damaging to kind of relegate intimacy and companionship only to marriage. Um, and I, I think it helps people a lot. I know it helps me a lot to have... Um, deep friendships and um, even <coughs> I think for I'd say for men it's particularly hard with the physical aspect because um, physical <laughs> intimacy between male friends is really looked askance at in our culture and it isn't in every culture when, uh, when I lived in India men would walk down the street holding hands and it was totally normal. No, that's um, fine. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. 
I was gonna say, you know what's funny about that? Like, I know that logically and consciously, but I come from like a rough town, and and you know, um, and it's funny. All my friends that come from there, like literally, we talk on the phone. We'll be like, I "Love you, man. Love you too." That's great. And it's so funny because like all this talk of. Like I come from the manliest place on earth, and yet wow. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, no, but I mean, what happened? And I, I'm the, love my day, and I'm like the the sensitive one of the family. I come to Victoria, and they're like, whoa, you're you're Hemingway esque. I'm like, no, I'm the weak one. I'm the weak. Uh, but but yeah, I just all this. It's funny because I'm I'm. It's like, yeah, it's 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 weird. That that is the case. I know that, but yeah. Anyway. yeah I'm glad to hear that. I yeah. think that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Most of my male friends have really struggled with that. Um, but Dad. Uh, well, just in my experience as a young Christian, a young man as a Christian, there was no vocabulary or no skill. I mean, guys struggled to talk intimately, generally. I think, mm -hmm. general, generally, but. Uh, then to add to that, the sexual uh, the discussions sexually uh, among men, uh, that, that was pretty rare. But we would, we would talk as young men about our struggles and, and how does the Lord come into that. But in terms of the church and male leadership in the church, non-existent. And I think that really has to change. Like <clears throat> There has to be... <coughs> A modeling of that for young people, <coughs> both female and male, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm being challenged here myself. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, also just maybe men even more are given, I don't want to say more, but I think women can tend to be more articulate in this area, but men given the vocabulary, given mm -hmm. the, the tools to talk about it in a way that is, mm -hmm. they're able to. Mm -hmm. And that being, you know, modeled as well for younger yeah. Kids, but it's it's just not part of our culture generally. Yeah. My upbringing, or most, I would suggest most men, it's mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you have locker room talk, mm -hmm. but that's not what we want. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we want church talk, mm -hmm. and how do we? You know, that's got to be, yeah. That's got to be dealt with, mm -hmm. I think. But we ignore it mm -hmm. because we're all uncomfortable. Yeah, and especially if it's men who are, yeah. Anyway, yeah, thank you. And so I, I realized kind of as I wrote this talk too, it's like it kind of slanted pretty heavily to the female perspective because that's what I am. Um, and so I, I realized like that men have a whole, like not totally different, it's similar, but there's um, there are some different issues that come up. And I think that even like the gender imbalance in church, that it's most churches are more women, um, that creates problems for men as well as for women. And I think um, that that lack of having some role models and people that they that that men can talk with has like been a, a difficult one. I think <laughs> that's what they, they see, it seems to me. Um, and yeah, and I think that that can go a huge way for men. I think there's like also pornography is um, a challenge for both men and women, but more so for men um, statistically speaking. And I think there's a lot of shame around that. Yeah. Um, and, and Clark will talk more about shame and sexual, uh, sexuality later this term, um, but I think that, that, that the way that we talk about those things in the church are, is really important um, so that people actually feel like it can be a discussion they can have, um, not have to hide. So, yeah, and, and it's, it's really, really widespread <laughs> in the, among the male students who come through here as well. Um, it's, it's, 
yeah, we're, we are very naive about it a lot of the time, just how, how pervasive it is in the church. Uh, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's all naivety. I think there's a fear. Yeah. It's just, there's, a, there's ignorance, but there's fear, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But it means getting involved in a really deep way to, yeah. to actually deal with these things, right? Like, yeah, it's but, not easy. But, I mean, as you say with that fellow in Toronto, even in the church, I've, I know one guy in particular who took his life mm -hmm. because this was such a painful thing mm -hmm. for him. You know, mm -hmm. and, and that's, mm -hmm. that's not okay. Oh, it's just you taking it. I think in that, I think it also helps to say that I think the church needs to be careful. Uh, you were saying giving language for men to use for intimacy, but also the church can fall onto particular gender stereotypes mm -hmm. where masculinity is a very specific thing, femininity is a very specific mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. And, uh, and even kiss dating goodbye, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, or captivated or captivating. I can't remember. Captivating. What it is. Yeah, Elridge and yeah. Wild at Heart. I mean, it's just sometimes the church can play into that. That's also an unhelpful narrative. It's not a biblical narrative. Yeah. Yeah. yeah again, I would say that's the, the Christian culture putting like a Christian spin on secular culture already, mm -hmm. like the stereotypes that secular culture has made. And I, and I think <laughs> there there is difference, but we're not told like that much about what the difference is, and we can we want to make it into the, these kind of neat categories, um, and <coughs> and like that that line that I quoted, like women women give sex to get love, men give love to get sex, like it's those kind of things that you read that it's like okay, well there might be some difference, uh, I mean, but to make make it tight like that is like that to me really down because it just creates this idea like that this book that i read it was like well you you know you don't want to hurt yourself but basically men's feelings don't matter because <laughs> they don't have feelings and that's not true <laughs> and also women want sex that is true so um you know what there's one thing that i was oh uh, the wendell berry mm -hmm. bring wendell berry into it um is great because I was thinking about how I, um, maybe you can speak to this if this makes sense here um, to me the problem with sexuality in our culture in general in a general sense isn't so much our problem with sexuality in and of itself that's like the net result of a bigger problem and it would be like Wendell Berry talks about a lot about the economy mm -hmm. the economy of marriage mm -hmm. the economy of a household the balance and the maintenance of, mm -hmm. of these spheres mm -hmm. And I look at it as the culmination of a lack of economy in everything. And then now when we look at sexuality, mm -hmm. like we have no economy in relationships. We have no eco economy in, you know, whether that's parenting, whether that's um, being neighborly. You know, you go into your suburbs and you go into your garage and on and on and on and on. And then that result is alienation. And then now it trickles into sexuality and you got like... Mm -hmm. You know, this complete breakdown at every point you got, I, as a teacher, I would talk to, especially boys, I'd be like, talking to them, and they're like, staring through me, and I'd go to the staff room, like, these guys are watching too much porn, like, their brains are, are rotted, like, I know for a fact they're going home, and they're, like, they cannot think, and you have girls going, like, porn for girls, I guess, at that age is 
Instagram and waiting for the for the likes and so on and so forth and and I think yeah that then all of a sudden you become an adult or not even and uh, yeah it's just a net result of alienation and um, there's no fundamental value you can't have a worldview that has fundamental value for not just people anything yeah so yeah right so yeah that the, the essay that I quoted from with Linda Berry talks about um, yeah, the the loss of of the household kind of community and um, and just the consumerist sort of mentality for everything and how we don't we have the public but we don't have the community anymore that kind of protects the things that, that we value in a society and so that you're right that breakdown has happened in like every sector not just in sexuality um, but it's affected that as well and so. I mean, <laughs> time to go into all of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that that's true. And, and you know, I'd say like in the families, um, like the fact that even parents, you know, I, I was out for dinner the other day and there was a, a father and a son having dinner together. He was, the son was probably about eight and the kid was on the um, iPad the whole time and the father mm -hmm. was on a smartphone the whole time. Like they didn't look at each other once the whole time. And it was so sad to me because I thought you have so few years with this kid and you're not even looking at each other or talking to each other. And so um, I think that, well, yeah, I'd say technology is a big culprit here um, and our use of it just being mindless. Um, and I think I think uh, in the title of one book, Reclaiming Conversation is really, really huge. Like we have to practice that to be able to have these conversations. Like we've lost our ability to just have a conversation in our society because we avoid difficult things while we're, esca we're escaping um, pain and difficulty through a lot through our phones and other things like that just filling up the space and we don't even yeah even struggling with sexuality like we don't want to feel that so we just fill it as fast as we can um and and we need to give a bit more space even though it hurts and make room to have those conversations with each other yeah. there's just this like little dialogue going on in my brain i mean there's a lot but a part of it <laughs> is um this purity movement and, and what started it, and there must have been something good about it. It can't all be bad. Yeah. And I'm just curious about how this, I guess, kind of um, birthing of a model was so effective for some and yet so heartbreaking for others. And I'm just wondering, like, if there really is a new movement of purity coming in. I feel like we have to look for the good, well, what we perceive as good and biblically true in that purity movement and then um, attach it to another ideology that seems more realistic or more relevant to our time because it seems like the purity movement is, is outdated and it's no longer relevant and it's isolated to a group of young 20-year-olds instead of moving past your early 20s. Um, or at least that seems like a flaw in it to me. So I'm just wondering if there really needs to be a new purity movement. We could be the people here to start again. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's all write a book. Um, but like, a lot of people wrote really similar books, and they all got published. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's just sad about Christian publishing. But um, I'm just curious. Like, it had it worked for a couple people. Yeah. And I'm wondering, where's that breakdown? What did they do? I mean, but you can't look at it like an equation because that's never how it works. Yeah. You don't do something and get another thing. <coughs> so I'm just kind of spitballing ideas and wondering. I'm wondering, how did it work for some but not others? I think because maybe the idea behind it, uh, like Rose was saying, was essentially good. 
like purity is a good thing. But then, because there's this, if you do this, then, I think that's where it broke down. It's kind of like, yeah, making a deal with mm -hmm. somebody. And God doesn't really make deals like that. Um, yeah. So I don't think that it worked for people because they did it follow the rules. It just it's because they met somebody. <laughs> and so yeah, I don't think that Yeah, I think that's true, and I mean, I would, I would love to turn the question back to you and the others who grew up with, with these kind of yeah. things and say, well, what was, what could we keep that's good, and then how can we improve this? Because um, I'm not sure that I mean, I found some of the books that I read very helpful, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, there's just some suggestions that I've. I, I think, I guess I would say that this intergenerational thing, like I think this needs to be a church project, not yeah. just like a 20-something project, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, yeah. Like just have celibacy, true love weights, conferences and stuff. Like I think mm -hmm. it needs to be, it needs to be all of the church community together saying like, how can we support each other? How can we support people who are struggling in marriage? How can we support single people? Um, how can we work together on this? Mm -hmm. um, I think otherwise it just kind of makes it seem like, Oh, this is a single young twenty single people's problem issue. Yeah. And actually, it's not chastity is a is an issue for everybody, married or not. Mm -hmm. So, totally. so I think that that's I just like to broaden the whole mm -hmm. thing um, and say, okay, how can we work on this together? Mm -hmm. I don't know, but if you if anyone else has other thoughts on that, I think the main problem with the the whole purity movement was actually that like it, it taught that kind of the opposite of purity is just like shame and brokenness right. and there was only these two right. ways Options. of being so yeah. you're either like pure you kept yourself yeah. pure or you were yeah. shameful and broken and there was no other option between between those two right. so what would you what would you say in response to that or what would you say is the other option <laughs> right. well perhaps some of that shame and brokenness does actually stem from the church's response to somebody who it does come to the service that they have lived a life of impurity the church, you know, they shame that couple, or that mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. Whereas the church now is able to look at uh, a person who, you know, we say they live a life in sin, etc., uh, and to look at them and say, you know, we, we act with compassion, not to justify what they did, but mm -hmm. to say, you know, we stand with you, and we, we want to help you. We don't want to, you know, say you are good or evil, or that we don't want to, the church doesn't condemn so much anymore. The church stands uh, as a compassionate sort of an ally, I suppose. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think I think some of this is like helpful to sort of look at uh, like ourselves as on a journey. Like that's what discipleship is. Is like it's like step by step. So it's not like oh you're a virgin or not a virgin, <laughs> or like right. even the language of like God can restore your virginity, which is often <laughs> talked about. Like well, that's not really the point. <laughs> like it's. <laughs> Yeah. A recycled version. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 It's eco-friendly. <laughs> <laughs> it would help instead of having a 21-year-old write a book about <coughs> to have like an 85-year-old write about it. That yeah. would be amazing. In a way. Yeah. I mean, That'd be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. When you have new technology, <laughs> you know, internet and Tinder <laughs> and blah, blah, blah. But, uh, I don't know. I just think a person with 
-hmm. a seasoned mm -hmm. life, mm -hmm. particularly talking to lots of people mm -hmm. that where they witness sexual dysfunction, mm -hmm. sexual brokenness, and sexual health. Mm -hmm. And it would be better just to not have a 21-year-old <laughs> write a book. You know? And there's a place to hear from from 21-year-olds. Don't get me wrong. Right. Well, yeah. It's, it's your place, <laughs> but, but you know, yeah. and, and churches will hire youth pastors. Right. That barely know anything. Yeah. At twenty twenty one, they're constantly confused <laughs> in the midst of university teaching junior high kids what to think about for the rest of their life. Right. Yeah, and they're not even fully. And paid. they're not even paid either. Usually, they're like. True. Because uh, in their right mind, they probably wouldn't take the job. I mean, I have a friend who's in her 80s, um, and she has been married three times. Like, with re like one of her husbands died, she got divorced once, and then the third one was the charm. Um, <laughs> and, but and and but he passed away, and she's single now again. And she's just like she's a, such a lovely person with such a like a vibrant childlike spirit and love for God and. And then I would read any book she wrote on singleness, <laughs> or marriage, or whatever, because because she's had like all kinds of amazing experiences, and I don't care if she doesn't know about smartphones. <laughs> it would be amazing, yeah. Well, I was thinking about just what you said is like you're the shame and like multiple marriages, and mm -hmm. um, or you're like you lived a good life and you didn't stumble. Um, but and then I'm also talking about. I don't know, just the idea that everything is not like just this black and white shame or pure, mm -hmm. but it's also this redemption in between, mm -hmm. like, um, mm -hmm. and how that redemption is actually, um, and then just to even be the person who goes through multiple marriages or mm -hmm. who goes through multiple relationships, but also just actually seeing yourself as a person, you're actually still a product of grace, right? Exactly, um, and valuing yourself as that. Um, yeah. I think that informs so much shape, informs so much of our behavior yeah. it shapes it in sort of bitterness and like sort of like all these things but also like grace can like shape our behavior as well and like I don't know just yeah. the thought yeah no, that's that's great, and Clark, I mean, like I said, Clark was going to talk more on shame. I don't want to stray into his territory too much, but um, but I think that that's what I was kind of trying to say is that it's that we are disciples on a journey, and then we say that we, like we make mistakes, we get up again, we keep walking, mm -hmm. um, and and we never we're never trying to go back to something like back to virginity or whatever, mm -hmm. like um, because God keeps calling us forward and redeeming us like every time we fail, and we will fail, mm -hmm. um, and then we get up and. We, in his grace, we keep walking again, um, or, or rowing. I just read something. It was like failure is research. <laughs> right. I don't know. And it's not. I mean, it's it's nice if you can learn from other people's failures and not your own. <laughs> but I think also, but sometimes we've been so afraid of failing. Like Joshua Harris was saying about his book, that people can develop this really fearful attitude towards making any mistakes in relationships, yeah. because um, I might get my heart broken, or I might hurt someone else, or I may make a mistake, and um, and that that kind of takes away the, from the role of grace or even trusting God. <laughs> Um, because you have to do every single thing right, otherwise um, there will be a terrible, terrible mistake. Yeah, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. It's like, like, yeah, if anything happens, or if like, you make this mistake. Like or you date the wrong like, person. There's always, like, you know. like, at the end, there's always this uh, form of redemption. Right. That you can live in. 
Right, and I think, and, and we do hurt each other, and our hearts do get broken, but that's part of being human too, and um, and that is the work of, of grace, and um, so we don't have to be so afraid of that, like we can't avoid suffering by doing all the right things. Anyways, um, there's still going to be suffering, but yeah. Just speaking to what you and Clark were saying about the 80-year-old writing the book, um, <laughs> Like, like as a, I mean, this isn't a silver bullet or something, but just like with what I was saying about economy, I think I'm just reminded of my grandma. She's she's passed away now, but you know, if you look at, I think a one big solution is like part of economy is taking on sacrifice willingly, under like taking on sacrificing, understanding scarcity, right? And I look at the time period that my grandma um, got married. It was 1945. The war just ended. Um, you know, their birth control wasn't invented yet. Mm-hmm. She had ten kids. Um, you know, there was a real sense of they, they didn't have birth control. She got married. She moved to Canada. Um, they started a life. Like, there was a cost in everything. She left her family. Mm-hmm. She had a trust fund. She said, no, I'm not, whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what <did> you know? <laughs> <laughs> happened by proxy because that was the nature of just just life back then right because that was normal but so my point is that that um you know she had 10 kids and then fast forward she lived this full life it wasn't perfect but she had grandchildren and great-grandchildren she made a choice at a young age she got married on and on and on and And then when my granddad died um you know a couple years afterwards i'm like do you uh are you hey what do you think you remarry this one's for you clark she said county when you've had prime rib, you don't go back to chop liver. <laughs> so, but my point is that I look at her life and I see this, there's real sorrow, and she lost two of them, two of the babies, right? Like, real shame, or not shame, real pain and real, real sorrow, and um, you can hold those things simultaneously because there's, there's sacrifice and economy at work. Now, what do we do about that today? I think we have to willingly take that on, and we have all these narratives culturally, you know, left and right politics and all these things, feminism and men, da 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 da. But I think with the, and I'm not trying to, no, I'm not trying to say anything <laughs> mean to any group. I'm saying as Christians, though, we have the gospel, whether those are right or wrong. No, whether those are right or wrong, I could be, they could be totally. I'm saying when we have the gospel and we're searching for truth, I'm saying we just have narratives. They, there's no such thing as feminism. There's Millions of different types, right? So they're all right, let's say, for argument's sake. I'm just saying, (laughs) they're all right, okay? (laughs) We have to willingly take on sacrifice for the gospel, I think, when you have birth control, when you have... Get in, I could go get a date tonight. No, I couldn't, but any any other guy could. On on an app or whatever. All these things are, are... readily available. You can have an abortion. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying you can do it. You can adopt. You can do whatever you want. Everything becomes cheap, right? And I think as Christians, this isn't a silver bullet. I'm being vague. We have to willingly take on that sacrifice, I think. And maybe we, I'm not saying this, maybe we shouldn't use birth control. I don't know. I'm just saying there's, there's, like, I don't know. But somewhere I think maybe we gotta just take on the burden of like maybe I'm gonna have ten kids you know I don't know I won't but who knows yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really interesting aspect of this 
uh, this whole discussion. And I'm not, I don't totally know what I think about the birth control issue either, but yeah. I think that, it, that like, um, part of it, like this sort of narrative of like, um, it's natural to have as much sex as you want. It's well, the only reason we think it's natural is because we have contraceptives. Um, which actually aren't natural, and so um, naturally we'd be getting pregnant all the time. Well, you wouldn't, but I would. And <laughs> um, and so you know, if if we if if people were having sex all the time, and um, and so it's sort of weird. It's weird that we use that language of like, oh, it's natural to just like follow your bodily urges because actually it would have had a consequence, and that's the reason that we have marriage and families is to protect the kids who are born out of that, and so um, or one of the reasons, and. Uh, and yeah, so so I just think like it's whatever you think about birth control, like it's important to recognize that actually it's not really natural. <laughs> um, th this like it's the well the sexual revolution happened in in part because of that, and um, and it sort of paved this way for for no strings attached, and um, a child is a pretty big string, and I think that we shouldn't just cut that string from sex either because that is a huge part of what it's for. Um, and I think when that's totally severed, then it does just become about pleasure, and um, that that is, yeah, there's not that kind of creative potential or the hospitality involved in it. And um, but it, yeah, it's 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 still it's difficult, and I think all of, yeah, all of those are really complicated issues that you bring up. So, um, but I do think it's important for us not to just I don't know. I, it, it, when I have friends who've gotten married and who could have children, but just decided they didn't want them. Um, with no kind of no consideration that there is something about that that I find unsettling actually. Um, like some people obviously can't have kids and that's that can be very painful. Uh, but I think it should be a consideration at least that that is part of what marriage is for. Um, so I don't know, that's, that's a new thing that you could get married and just decide that you don't want to have children. Um, so yeah, our society's just changed a, a lot in the last I think that Cody touched on something that was helpful. Um, most of the discussion has been somewhat first-person singular. <laughs> it is a very personal thing. Mm -hmm. It's me, or if it's not implicitly me, it's kind of, you understand what I mean? It's really me, but it's, I don't want to say it is. Well, I want to throw in this as an older guy, married 35 years, <laughs> messed up plenty of times not not in outside the marriage but within the marriage because that's human relationships and um, and i look almost down a generation or two where most of the discussion is rightly happening here and i hear mentions about the church here and there what i haven't heard is about the church and the individual christian caring loving supporting, having empathy, which generally comes from relationships, but sometimes can be slightly removed. And I think there's a great role for the church and for Christians, well, I suppose for all people, but of, of a mind for this, <laughs> to have an awareness of where people around us sit <laughs> with issues like this and to be supportive. Whether it's from a distance in prayer, whether it's in one-to-one, -one, however it comes about. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, yes, you can have the, the, the movements um, that will come and they come and will go, 
but none of them will replace the individual healing that a relationship from one person to another can bring. Mm -hmm. Definitely, I think that's that's just really huge, and I think that's I mean that's what I was trying to get out with this ideas of friendship, you know, and that 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 is, I think that even if even if you're married, <laughs> like friendship is still hugely important, and that's like in in all different areas, whether it's like a church leader or more of an equal <laughs> level or whatever, or having people that you mentor too, like that it's all different kinds of ages and stages, and we just need that. Um, and yeah, and I know for me that, that that has been huge in working these things out is to have friends who I know, no matter what I tell them, um, will be for me and will love me. Not that not that they won't criticize, like make any judgment or criticize me or challenge me, but that they're on my side and they're for me and they want to see me grow and flourish and um, and become who God has made me to be. And so I don't know if that's that's getting at what you're talking about or if you maybe I don't know if you want to share about any relationship that's been helpful for you. Or maybe you haven't experienced what you what you're hoping for, but um, yeah. Well, I'm I'm the, the guy that Tom was talking about who doesn't find it easy. Maybe it's a generational thing who doesn't mm -hmm. find it easy to communicate, mm -hmm. to be intimate. Mm -hmm. So I rarely let people mm -hmm. close enough keep mm -hmm. them away, mm -hmm. um, and that's more of a masculine thing, no question. Um, but when anyone, any of us aware of someone who might be desirous of some support mm -hmm. to, to throw them a line mm -hmm. that's what we have to do yeah no I think it's I think it's great and I think we we should I think we should actually form those things before someone even asks like to have good I think I mean I really like at my church that there's like these kind of accountability groups of a few people um, <coughs> that are formed like for that to uh, that framework to always already be there when something comes up not just like respond to crisis but already have it in place i think that that's really ideal but that will require for those of us who are struggle to be more open which is not as much me sometimes me but um to to sacrifice a little a little more and in, in opening up a bit more and for others of us to kind of step back a bit too i think so so yeah it's just it's that's that's hard work to do that yeah but thank you for bringing that I also think that the church is one place where there is hopefully more like intergenerational mm -hmm. relationships going on as well as, um, yeah, just like you said, friendship, uh, families, getting to know people who are single and um, mm -hmm. I think that we can do a lot more to cultivate that mm -hmm. and be more open to it. Mm -hmm. I feel like we've really bought into like the family unit mm -hmm. uh, and this is just my four walls and mm -hmm. you know um, and it costs a lot I think because it's we're living in such a fast paced culture and everybody's like obsessed about like creating these little geniuses that all they can think about is like themselves and seeing themselves in these little people and so I, I think it's kind of narcissistic too and, and so yeah, I think that we can look for ways to just include people in families, and uh, hopefully that's happening in churches, but also mm -hmm. to, like, realize that maybe, you know, we I think we, we all have to initiate that, like, mm -hmm. sometimes families probably don't even realize the, the, the gift yeah. 
that other people could be in their family. Yeah. Um, like it's only opened, like it's only been a gift to have Liz a part of our family, like for, for my kids. <laughs> like, yeah, so, and she, like you said, you need, you know, you need physical touch too, like Sarah Beth, you know, will make you, you know, feel so loved, you know, and, and so. I, I just think that we're so afraid and there's yeah. there there's usually not a lot of negatives. There's a lot more positive. Yeah, like you're saying it does it really does require self self sacrifice with that. But yeah, I mean I it just it has meant so much to me whenever a family's invited me over because I know it is a sacrifice. <laughs> and I'll, I and you know, like I I think I, I don't know because I'm not <laughs> married and have kids but I, like a lot of times it's chaos and it's probably hard to invite someone in because you feel like you kind of have to, you know, put on the Martha Stewart show or whatever mm -hmm. and sometimes you're just not there. But like some of my favorite people to visit are the ones who like there's clothes on toys all over the floor. They're like, oh, can you take the baby or can you stir this or, you know, and you just feel like you're welcomed into that and you're part of the family, not part of the show, you know, and that's, I think that's what a lot of us really do just want is, is just to be part of things and, um, and, and yeah, not not looking to be <laughs> impressed and, uh, and, I, and yeah, so I think there's there's just a huge gift and we can gain empathy for people in different stages. Um, like I know I do, I do with you guys <laughs> and seeing that up close and I know that you guys do with me as well. Um, so I think that's just really huge. <laughs> yeah. I have some uh, jumbled thoughts a little bit, but um, first of all, I want to say thank you uh, for the time and energy you put into uh, your lecture. Um, transparent, heartfelt, witty, uh, deep. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, I'm a little embarrassed about my uh, generation. I think generally speaking, um, we've been kind of a facade generation that we, we haven't been honest. We tried, we, we put so much energy into looking like we were doing well, mm -hmm. even when we weren't, and somehow that's gotten passed down. And I, I feel deep sorrow about that. I, I do think the way forward is for pastors, leaders in churches, they're kind of the rocks in the pond, right? So uh, to be honest about our sexual brokenness, that's, that's where we start, that's where we begin. That's where you start the sermon, uh, by admitting that. And then I want to tell a little story about my journey. Uh, I'll keep it short, I think, but uh, activating grace, to go back to something that you said earlier, that I struggled um, with Paul at the end of Romans 7 for a decade. Um, and Romans 8 is all about life and the power of the Spirit, and how do you get from the end of Romans 7? <laughs> into Romans 8, and I used to look at that and read it, and I never could figure out, how, is he in denial, you know, mm -hmm. for there's no condemnation, you just go from brokenness to uh, freedom like that, and, I, and it was about a decade, I just struggled, what, what is it, what's going on there, and then one day it just, it, it hit me that what he was doing at the end of Romans 7 is that he was surrendering, mm -hmm. who will set me free? And, and that when we surrender, then the grace of God comes and does in us and through us what we can't do on our own. 
and and that's become a kind of a life um, perspective hmm. for me. It's a, it's a it's a life of constantly surrendering, knowing that His grace will do what I can't. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I think we focus, we, we make the fruit the goal. Mm -hmm. uh, purity's not the goal. Great sex is not the goal. It's mm -hmm. the fruit mm -hmm. of this intimacy. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, part of me says it's a it's a theological problem too that we haven't grasped the gospel mm -hmm. and the beauty and the wonder of finding our our um, comfort and joy and delight in the gospel mm -hmm. and I my Christian life which is what forty years on or something there's such a small percentage of that where the gospel has meant that to me. Mm -hmm. And part of me feels guilty, uh, but part of it, part of most of me is joyful that it finally resonated, mm -hmm. that the grace will do in us and through us what we can't do on our own. Mm -hmm. I think of Christian Smith's work, uh, the sociological work of uh, therapeutic moralistic deism mm -hmm. has been the fare that the church has fed off of. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it's no wonder that we are where we are. Mm -hmm. We've lost the beauty of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're so right. I was going to say one thing about that too, about this thing about honesty. So I'm probably, I'm married 22 years, came right through the purity movement <laughs> and the college campuses where I went to school. Mm -hmm. And um, the friends that I ran around with, we were all in, the, in that movement of don't hold hands don't kiss mm -hmm. and we would we were concerned because there were fewer boys than girls <laughs> so we were like how's this going to work out how's everybody going to get there uh, you know are we going to find someone and I was just going to mention about this honesty with God I mean because even in some sense of what is seemingly walking in obedience is tainted by the by I me what I want in the sense that I can be seemingly acting very Christianly, but at the same time, what I'm really after is this guy is going to love me more because I was pure. Mm -hmm. This guy is going to cherish me more because of something, but it's still all about my sexual brokenness, you know, and my desire to be loved and not really about Jesus and mm -hmm. about God and uh, how he takes broken people and redeems it into something beautiful mm -hmm. that makes him, that brings glory mm -hmm. to himself and deep joy in our hearts, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so I was just thinking about that. When, when you said that, I was thinking about this kind of dishonesty in Christianity to be seemingly doing the right thing, but the heart is mm -hmm. far from God, mm -hmm. you know? and. Uh, so your brokenness, your desire for intimate relationship with somebody can be expressed through sexual dysfunction of promiscuity. It can also be expressed through sexual dysfunction of denying yourself still for your, and looking very Christianly, but it's still about self, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, so I just wanted to mention that. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. It's like the prodigal sons rebellion or religion. Mm. The gospel's the third way. Mm. Obedience is the fruit, not the 
goal. Well, it's well after nine. I just wanted to ask Megan, did you had had put your hand oh, up before? Oh, I was just, you yeah, thanks. I just want to say a little bit of a comment about how I think, <coughs> I would agree, like, friendship, I think, is a really big thing. Like, um, when I used to live on the mainland, I, like, lived at home, but, like, I knew my friends all kind of, like, lived in, like, separate places, and I feel like there was definitely, like, this, like, higher urgency to, like, want to meet someone and to want to, like, have that kind of connection even though we were friends but it's more like based on events and I found um, living with people and just having more intimate relationships mm -hmm. is like very healing mm -hmm. and it's really hard to grow when you're by yourself <laughs> and I think also it's really hard to like learn how to not put so much pressure on a relationship when you're like you're able to practice intimacy in friendship and to have true intimacy in friendship mm -hmm. and um, yeah, I just feel like that's such a, yeah, I don't know if I have a big point, but friendship has been so influential in my life, and I think um, when we're missing out on that, we do look at um, having a partner as being um, fulfillment of that when there are so many other types of intimacy um, that can be so good, or like so fulfilling in just some different ways. Definitely. I yeah. I just wish people could like be friends more. I feel like <laughs> people would like it. <laughs> I agree. A really great book on that topic is the book Spiritual Friendship by Wesley Hill. If anyone's interested in reading something that talks about um, form actually forming like covenantal friendships like David and Jonathan did and um, and I, I, yeah, I, I think it's it, the book made me cry. It was just so beautiful to, to think about having that kind of Thing actually in practice where you know I think often people feel like the only way they can get someone to stick with them is if they get married and that's sad I think we should have friendships that are like that too you know like you may move but that, that person is always there for you no matter what so I agree let's go on the friendship train um, okay so if you, you you're welcome to stay and chat more but I want to let those of you go who are wanting to go so thank you so much for all coming Excellent. and for your thoughts Thanks.